don't know about you, but when I'm looking at buying a new book, I, I love on Amazon being able to, you know, do the little sample thing, you, you know, see the back cover, see the table of contents, um, and, and hopefully being able to see even just a little sample of the book, you know, maybe the first chapter or so, so you can sort of get that introduction, get the, the author's part where they're hopefully compelling you to, to make the book something that you want to read, you know, where they're laying out for you that, that this is worth your time. Here's what I intend to tell you. Not all of the books of the Bible start off with introductions meant to, to sort of necessarily do that for you to kind of lay it out, but the Gospel of John certainly does. John's prologue, verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1, is really one of the clearest introductions in all of Scripture. If you have your Bible, you can turn to John chapter 1. We're going to move through a few more of the verses and finish that prologue this morning. That Next week, when we, we get to verse 19, we really start unfolding the narrative, if you will, of, of what it is that John wants us to see in terms of the life of Christ, uh, the, the things that he has been leading up to about what Jesus did, who he was, what he claimed. But in these opening verses, he wants to introduce us. He's told us the purpose. We've, we've already jumped ahead in our first week. We looked at John 20, verses 30 and 31, which speak of the, the purpose of the book. These things were written so that the, you would see through these signs that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is indeed the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. And so John's been explicit about why he's writing. It was so that you would see who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, who his miracles affirmed him to be. And what he's doing here in the introduction is introducing his book by introducing Jesus Christ. Started in verses 1 through 5 that we looked at by revealing this person described as the Word. And he unfolds for us that this one who is the Word is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then that this word is not only God, but is creator. Nothing came into being apart from him. And also we saw that this word is, is an overcomer when it comes to sin and evil. Darkness seeks to overwhelm him, but does not succeed in that because he is all-powerful. And then in verses 6 through 13, John builds on that theme of light that he first started on in, in verses 4 and 5 and describes this word as this light that has come into the world and is kind of a dividing point in all of history. He comes into the world as one who brings conviction of sin, as one who exposes man and brings to bear the glory of God so that all of mankind ultimately now is brought to bear under this light to either reject or embrace the light, to either embrace darkness, as we read in the, the John 3 passage, those who continue to love darkness, or run to the light that is this one who is the Word. We also, in verses 6 through 13, uh, John introduces, the Apostle John introduces another person, John the Baptist, and describes him as um, a prophet-like forerunner, somebody who goes before the word, who goes before the light, and, and goes to prepare for the coming of him, goes to call the people of Israel in particular to be ready for the coming of this, this one who is the word. All of that should get us to, by the time we get to verse 14, assuming we didn't know the rest of the story by having already read John, if we were reading it for the first time, by the time we get to verse 14, that should sort of leave us saying, okay, 
there's something really unusual going on here. There's a, he's describing a person who is like no other, a person who is God, who is preceded by a prophet, who announces his coming, who is the true light, who comes into the world, who creates. There's, there's just all of this that, that points to something truly unique that he is doing. And, and the design, I think, by John at this point is to leave us with the question by the time we get to verse 14 of, well, who is this? Who is the Word? Who is this one who is so profound and unique, who is God who has come to earth? You said he's created everything. He's the light of the world. Who is he? Verse 14 of John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Stop there. The late James Boyce, pastored for 30 plus years in Philadelphia, wrote this about verse 14. He said, I wish it were possible to approach John 1.14 as though reading it for the first time. This verse contains something that was new and quite startling when it was first written. This was the great sentence for which the Gospel of John is penned. It tells us, inexplicable as it may be, that God became man. John 1.14, in light of all that he has just said about the Word, John 1.14 is breathtaking. It is a remarkable statement. It is a National Enquirer-style headline on a real newspaper. So, you know, a Texas couple gives birth to alien on the front of the Washington Post. We go, ah, that can't be. That's hashtag fake news, right? That, that, that just can't be true. But that's, that's the nature of how remarkable this statement is. That's really when, when, when John pens this, as he's now dealing with people who are a growing group of skeptics in the world, that is just a remarkable kind of statement. It is incomprehensible that holy, transcendent, almighty, creator God could actually become a man. And remain God. And so you've got one of the most respected leaders of the early church, John, writing this under the direction of the Holy Spirit, declaring that transcendent, supernatural, creator of the universe, God, has become flesh and has lived among us like one of us. It's a remarkable statement. And just in case there's any uncertainty at what John's getting at at this point, he gets again very specific in verse 15 and says, John, that is John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. We'll get to the, the meaning there of what John is saying. But his, his point is this God man, this remarkable God actually becoming a man lived in history at a point in time in history. And, and that is true. And not only is that true, but you, you've heard of this John the Baptist who all the crowds went out to. He said, look, see this man. Be amazed, if you will, at, at this one. And so the Apostle John now is, is leading us to who is this? He hasn't said the name yet at this point. We know from, from having peeked ahead and knowing the story but he now will say it. Verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. There it is. This is the, the conclusion to the prologue. This is his sort of summing up and by, by putting forth his central argument that he will prove in the book, and that is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah sent from God, and even more than that, Jesus Christ himself is God. That is the argument that John is going to make, understanding fully that that is a startling argument that God could become man, but that's what he is going to set out to prove. As we've seen, John's gospel is probably chronologically the last of the four gospels to be written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The, the estimates are somewhere around 70, 80 AD. That's 40, 50 years following the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, following the, the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And surely now, a generation later, it is a time when skeptics have begun to arise just as the world is filled with them today. People who say, yeah, I've heard about that Jesus, but I'm not sure I buy that whole story. I'm not sure I, I get into that whole resurrection thing. I'm not sure that I believe he was God. And, and, and so John is now beginning to, to put forth the case. By this point in history, the church was already beginning to face some of the seeds of, of the early false teachings that the Apostle Paul deals with, but, but one of them is docetism, which is the idea that Jesus may have been God, but he certainly wasn't a man. And it comes from sort of an ancient religious belief that spiritual things are good, physical things are bad. It's just that simple. And so if, if Jesus was flesh, he couldn't possibly be God because the flesh is evil. If Jesus was God, then he was a spirit being. And so docetism started this notion that, well, yeah, you may have seen what was purported to be Jesus, but that was really more of like a phantom or an illusion or some kind of spirit being sort of pretending to be a person, but, but it couldn't possibly have been flesh because that would just destroy this, this flesh-spirit notion that they had. The Bible calls that an utter lie. Because John is just unequivocal here and intentional in verse 14 when he says, the word became flesh. The word became a man and then dwelt among us. He is as clear about that as he could be. Jesus did not cease to become God when he became flesh. He did not exchange divinity for humanity. This isn't the old science thing we learned about back in elementary school of the metamorphosis from the caterpillar to the butterfly. He was one and now he's the other. Now, the, the remarkable thing is here, Richard Lenski describes it this way. He says, Jesus did not cease to be what he was before, but he became what he was not before. Which, frankly, is in, in our minds, is hard to wrap our minds around. How does fully God become fully man, yet remain transcendent fully God? How does, he, how does that happen? How does that work? Well, that's what John says happened. And that's what John is going to put forth in his book. That's what the evidence of the Gospel of John is meant to say, that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you will come to know that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And that's what Jesus claims repeatedly throughout John's gospel. 
countless eyewitnesses affirmed that the, the things Jesus said and then the miracles that he did were not magic tricks. They weren't something that some religious teacher could do. The, the, the feeding of thousands, the water into wine, the raising of Lazarus, these miracles that John records are all designed for the purpose of saying, this must be God. This couldn't be an ordinary man. This is the power of God at work. I want to give you five claims in this passage this morning, five claims about Jesus Christ that ultimately lead us to understanding why he talks about Jesus as being full of grace and truth in this passage. So five claims about Jesus that lead us to understand the necessity of grace and truth. And claim number one is this one we've already talked about. It is that Jesus is the incarnation of God. We use that term incarnation a lot at Christmas. We talk about the birth of Jesus Christ. It is the idea that he became flesh. Caro in the Latin where we get incarnation from means flesh. If you go out afterwards and you order at a Mexican restaurant carne asada, you are ordering flesh or meat that has been grilled. It gives you something to look forward to, right, after service this morning. So flesh, the, the, the idea of what John is saying here when he says the word became flesh is he is talking about the enfleshment of God. And John states that as objective fact, Jesus became a man. The secular historian Flavius Josephus, who was not intending to be an advocate for Christianity, was intending to write history, alludes to Jesus Christ in his writing about the first century and, and as he reports what he saw. And Josephus wrote this, Now there was about this time a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works and a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew near to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ. What Josephus is... is recognizing there is that he, he's, he's baffled. He, he's a man, but I don't even know if we can call him a man because the things he did were so remarkable, they were things that, that were done by God. That's why he says a doer of wonderful works. I don't, I don't even know if it's right to call him a man because that doesn't seem like it's enough because it's not enough. But this is an historian who is writing about the life of Christ and the marvel that this man does things that a man shouldn't be able to do, there's something about him that is entirely unique. Even modern philosophers who want to oppose Christianity can very well seek to dismiss all this, but they can't undo the objective historical evidence that Jesus Christ was a real man who lived in the first century and who lived in Israel and who claimed to be God, who made bold claims that ultimately led to great opposition to him and that he was testified about by others and that he claimed to be God in flesh. Verse 14 also says he dwelt among us, talking about this idea of incarnation. The, another way to say that is he pitched his tent in our midst. The, the Greek word for dwelt at this point is skenao, and, and so John's Jewish readers at this point, there's a ring of familiarity in that, that term for them who knew the Old Testament. The Hebrew Old Testament word for dwelling was pronounced as shekinah. We go back to 
the Hebrews coming out of Egypt. They have been in slavery. They are being led out of Egypt. And you recall how they were led out of Egypt. There was that bright cloud during the day that was the presence of God. And then there was a pillar of fire at night. And they, they followed that. It was God directing them. And God directed them that when they camped, they were to, to build a tent in the middle of the camp that would be called the, the tabernacle, right? And the point of the tabernacle was that this glory of God now would dwell in their midst. It would come and it would fill the tabernacle. And, and that word tabernacle in the Hebrew is a form of where we get that word Shekinah. It is the dwelling place of the glory of God among man. I don't think there's any doubt that when John says what he does in verse 14, that that is in his mind when he says, we have seen his skinao, that he dwelt among us, skinao, I should say. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father. We have seen dwelling in Jesus, glory, like our forefathers saw, dwelling in their midst, in the glory of God. The glory of God that filled the tabernacle in the wilderness that was made from human hands now fills this man who dwells among them, who tents among them, if you will. Jesus is the incarnation of God. And that leads to the second claim that Jesus then is the glory of God. At the very point now that John is, readers are being reminded of the fact that God dwelt among their forefathers in the Old Testament, he now makes that connection to Jesus. The same glory of God has now come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. It is embodied in Jesus Christ. After the tabernacle, when the Hebrews finally settled in the land that was promised, they built the temple under Solomon in Jerusalem. And Second Chronicles describes the celebration around the dedication of that temple and the, the music and the cheering and the instruments and all that went into that great celebration. And Second Chronicles 5, verse 13 says, The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. As they were dedicating that temple, the Shekinah, the, the glory dwelling of God now comes into their midst and fills that temple in such a way that the priests who are leading that worship and that celebration are stepping back because they are in awe of what is happening. Because God's glory is, is in their midst is coming to this place where they are. Visible manifestation of God's perfection and God's holiness and his greatness is there for them to behold. Carry that over to John 1.14, and Jesus Christ is that Shekinah glory of God. They are seeing in Jesus. What John is trying to say is we, we, we began to see through Jesus. We got a glimpse of the, the majesty and the glory of God in Jesus because God is now dwelling among men and the marvel here is that he's calling people to himself. He is approachable. He wants people to come to him and to believe on him. Jesus was fully glorious. He was not God with a small g. When men and women saw Jesus, they beheld the glory of God seeing it with their own eyes, what they had not seen before, the incarnation of God. Verse 14 then also says, 
Glory as of the only Son from the Father. New American Standard says the only begotten Son. So those of us who, when we're quoting John 3.16, everything in us wants to say the only begotten Son, that whosoever, those of us who want to do the whosoever want to do the only begotten because that's the way we learned it. King James, uh, New American Standard, take this word and they, they give us what is, here we have this third claim, and that is Jesus is the unique Son of God. That phrase, only begotten, confuses some and has been used by cults to try to say, well, see, what that really means is Jesus is a created being. He came forth from God, the Father. He's begotten of God, and so somehow the Father is responsible for the existence of Jesus. The the word that is used there, the Greek word is monogenes, same word here as in John 3.16. Mono meaning single, one, genes, stock, or kind, or brand, or breed, if you will. What the word is trying to say to us is it's one of a kind. This is the unique one and only son. It's not talking about being begotten in the sense of somehow coming into being. It's talking about the utter uniqueness of Jesus as a son of God the Father. He has a relationship to God the Father that is like no other. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are able to refer to God as Father. You look to him as Abba Father. You are a son or daughter of God. You you look to him as having given you new birth and new life. And we are that. And yet Jesus was uniquely God's son. He is in a class of God's sonship that is unlike any other. That word monogenes is used in Hebrews when it talks about Abraham and Isaac. In Hebrews 11.17 says Abraham offered up Isaac his only son. If you know your Old Testament history, you know that Prior to Isaac was Ishmael, seeing who gets the points here for the Bible trivia. Ishmael. Ishmael was born first. Ishmael was born to the servant, Hagar, but was still fully Abraham's son. And yet he says his only son, Isaac. And that's because what he's saying here is Isaac is the one of a kind son. What God had promised Abraham was a nation that would come from him, that would receive blessing from God and would be a blessing to all of the nations. That was not Ishmael. That was Isaac. And it is through Isaac that that blessing comes. So Isaac is his one of a kind son. So that's the the point of the word here is that Jesus Christ shares a relationship with God the Father that is entirely unique. He is a son of a one-of-a-kind sort of way. And John inserts this sort of parenthetical remark that we read in verse 15 where John the Baptist bears witness to Jesus and says, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It's a fascinating statement by John, and, and what it simply refers to is the chronology we talked about last week, and that is, John was born before Jesus. The the two are relatives of some sort. Mary and Elizabeth are related, and so John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins or something like that. And and John the Baptist is saying, this one who comes after me, he's born three months after me, is before me because he was before me. That's just John's way of reminding us of what we've already seen, John the Baptist's way of reminding us that Jesus is eternal, that even though he came After me, he was existing before me because he is eternal. So then verse 16, we've read again, but just in terms of claims here about Jesus. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Fourth claim about Jesus is that he is the fullness of God. John says we've all received from the fullness of Jesus. What does that mean? 
couple other places in the New Testament where it speaks of fullness in Colossians. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 1.19, For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The word fullness, as it's used in the New Testament, has the picture of the totality of God's power and God's attributes. It is the sum of everything that makes God, God. The fullness of God is that which delineates God from us, and it's wrapped up in that term fullness. And he's making yet another remarkable claim. We have all received of his fullness. We have all derived benefit from that. What have we received? Everything we need for life and godliness. Peter says that in 2 Peter 1.3. Because of his divine power, we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have peace. We have forgiveness. We have hope. We have strength. We have eternity before us. We have a, a Savior who abides with us. We have his Spirit who is present with us. We have that because the fullness of God, the majesty of God, his power and his attributes dwells in Christ, and we have received from his fullness. We have benefited from that, the forgiveness and the joy and the hope. Leon Morris, who's written extensively about John's gospel, writes, God's grace to his people is continuous and is never exhausted. God is able to supply all of our needs. Jesus Christ is God. The infinite resources of God are available to you and I and ministered to you and I through Jesus Christ. So verse 18 then Last one in this section again. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's hand. He has made him known. He has made him known. Type of study that we're doing this morning, type of preaching that, that Grace Bible Church does is called expository preaching. It is to take the Word of God and open it and say, this is what it says. <laughs> it's pretty simple. It's, this, is, this is what the text says because that's what's important. And so it's exposing it. The, the process of getting to an expository sermon that they teach you in seminary is called exegesis, which is how to get to the, the meaning of the text. What, what does the text simply say? Take its basic historical meaning and its content. So you do exegesis. The word here at the end of verse 18, um, that he is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God, but the word, Jesus, has made him known. That word for made him known is exegetomai, from which we get Exegesis. In other words, Jesus Christ is the exposition of God. That's the fifth claim. Jesus Christ is showing us God. He is exposing to us, helping us to see, to comprehend, to, to understand better who God is. Without Jesus, no man has seen God. Exodus 33:22, as God passes by Moses and Moses gets a glimpse of of what is the, the back of God, Exodus 33:22, God says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Jesus allows us to see God. When men and women saw Jesus, they were seeing God. Jesus gives us the, the, the fullest revelation. We had the prophets in the Old Testament, and now in these latter times, as Hebrews says, we have his son, Jesus Christ, who is showing us who God is. The life of Christ becomes the, the clear picture of God. So Jesus Christ is the incarnation of God, the glory of God, the unique Son of God, the fullness of God, and the exposition of God. 
with all that in mind, there's, there's the prologue, verses 1 through 18. For any God-fearing person who is seeking to understand what John is claiming at this point, this is profound. All that he's read, if this was, if this was your first time, and this is, this is why we give the gospel of John so often to people when they, they're trying to understand Jesus. It's because the, the idea here is by the time you've finished the prologue, if you are... If you're genuinely trying to understand who Jesus Christ is, this is like that mind-blown stage where it's like, wow, this is completely different. This is not just some historical figure, some, some interesting teacher. This is exalted, matchless creator God in flesh who has come to expose the sin in our hearts but also to show the truth and to bring salvation. What John is doing here, I think in part, is saying to the skeptics and the doubters is, if your sense on Jesus is, oh, I've heard about Jesus. I, yeah, we read some of Jesus' stuff in college in some literature course, and he's fascinating and, and you know, was a real activist back in the, the, the first century, you know, original you know, warrior out there for the cause. What John is saying is you better look again. Because, yes, Jesus Christ comes to minister to the oppressed and, and, and to help those who are in need. But you better come face to face with Jesus Christ. And that's what John is trying to do here is to say, this is, this is not just some historical figure. If you've ignored him before or played him down before, I am here to tell you, you need to look hard at who Jesus is and who he claimed to be. Because in Jesus, the power and majesty of holy, transcendent God exists in bodily form and was brought to man to see up close and to call man to, to repent and turn to him. And so the issue of the rest of the book now is John saying, will you believe now? <laughs> you, you know where I started. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, creator, he lived among us. So when he turns the water into wine, when he feeds the thousands, when he walks on the water, you can imagine John at each one of those instances saying, now, do you believe now? Do you see who he is yet? Convinced yet? How can you not be? Because no ordinary man could do this. Will you believe? We saw it earlier in chapter 1. Mankind divides on the question of Jesus. Some love darkness, and they will stay in the darkness and reject Jesus Christ. By God's grace, some are called out of the darkness and embrace him as the light and are thankful for their salvation and freedom from judgment. But, but let me just have you think on this just before we, as we wrap up. In both verses 14 and 17, the thing John wants us to see also about Jesus is he is full of grace and truth. It says that at the end of verse 14, full of grace and truth, and then again in verse 17, law through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In both of those verses, John says to us, Jesus is the epitome of grace and truth. If there's one thing we know about the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is that grace and truth are two of the most necessary fundamental elements of the word and of the gospel even more specifically. Think about it. Here is God's word confronting us with these incredible claims that this guy who lived in the first century, who was born in a remote place, 
who lived a, a fairly obscure life for most of his life, except for just the last few years of ministry, that this guy is God in flesh. Not just some Jewish rabbi, not some son of a carpenter, not some guy who could do tricks. This is God. And he knows that he's making remarkable claims, and the question of how you respond to these claims is ultimately a question of truth. It's a question of whether or not you will believe the truth claims that Jesus Christ made about himself. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of absolute truth testified to by John and testified to by the word of God and testified to by the church now for 2,000 years. Later in this book, Jesus Christ is going to stand before a crowd that is prepared to kill him and he is going to say in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Who says that? Who stands before a crowd that is prepared to kill him and says, you either listen to my words and believe that I am sent from God, or you will be condemned. You either embrace who I am and what I say and receive eternal life or you will stand before the judgment of God for eternity. That is a remarkable thing for anyone to claim. We know Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, right, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, who says that? That's why the Jewish priests were as angry as they were. How can he say, no one goes to God except through him? He stands alone. And we've, we're memorizing it in John 3.18, that whoever does not believe in Jesus is already what? Condemned. Harsh. But Jesus states it as truth. These are declarations that Jesus made for himself. You can choose to accept them or to ignore them and to dismiss them, but you cannot deny the historicity of them. You cannot deny the fact that Jesus Christ lived 2,000 years ago and plainly said these things and that there is a record of his miracles that has stood this test of time, unlike any other ancient writing. For it C.S. Lewis probably said it the best when he said it, it's either he's either telling the truth, he's either the Lord, or else he's a lunatic. And, and the way Lewis described it is he's a lunatic on par with a madman who would claim to be a poached egg. In other words, he's a lunatic of the form that stands on the street corner and claims to be some crazy object that you go, let's cross the street. He's either that because of the things he's saying or he's a liar from the devil himself. That was Lewis's argument. This is either, this is either Satan at work in him, madman, or he's Lord. Because he stood in front of hostile crowds and not only claimed to be God, but said he alone was man's hope of salvation. He was the only way. It's an issue of truth. Will you believe the truth of what Jesus said about himself? Or opt instead for some man-made notion about Jesus. Some man-wrought sort of idea of who Jesus might be. Because truth is fundamental to the gospel. You either believe that this is true, or you choose to remain in the darkness and reject Christ. Truth is essential. Which then explains why grace 
is absolutely essential. He is full of grace and truth. Grace is God dealing with me, not in terms of what I deserve, but out of his own goodness and generosity doing what I do not deserve. Grace is God taking his just wrath against your sin and mine, against your rejection and mine, against your anger and mine, your lust and mine, and your lying and mine, and it is God taking his wrath that we rightfully deserve for that and taking and pouring it on his innocent, perfect son who stands in our place as the substitution for us, as the one who takes our punishment. And that is grace. In all of John's writings, Gospel of John, letters for Second, Third John, and Revelation, John does not teach really about grace. He uses it in his a couple of greetings in Revelation and First John, maybe in Second and Third, but he, he does the grace and peace to you greeting, and so grace is mentioned. This is the one place where he actually sort of says something more about grace, and I, I think that's entirely appropriate. Because if you've come to the end of John 1, 1 through 18, and you are at all trying to understand more about this Jesus Christ, you should now find yourself standing in the presence of a holy and sinless God who is risen from the dead and who you and I will one day stand before as judge of the universe. And that is why we cry out for grace because of what is true, because of what we know about him. We desperately need grace. What should be abundantly clear is the same experience that the disciples had. We've talked about it already in Luke 5. Remember that fishing experience where the net goes out that should come up empty and it comes back loaded with more fish than they can handle and Peter's response is, depart from me, I'm a sinner, just go away. Why am I in your presence? I've now come to understand that you are, you are the glory of God right here. Why in the world am I even in the same proximity with you? We have seen Jesus as the glory and fullness of God on display for our understanding and exposing and convicting us. Have you ever gone somewhere to an event or a party and you didn't get the memo about the dress code and just about everybody else was really dressed well, maybe even elegant, and you look like you just showed up? and hadn't really planned for that, right? You know that feeling of just, you know, one of the few times when I show up at church and suddenly everybody's got a jacket and tie and it's like, come on, I didn't get the note on that, right? Well, the idea here, what John is trying to do on a far greater scale, what his gospel is meant to do is to take the sword of God's truth and lay us bare, to make us stand out and go, oh, wait a minute, I, I don't, I, based on truth, I don't belong here. I have, I have no claim on God. I, I bring nothing in terms of my works, my performance. I've got sin and, and all this other stuff. And it is to make us realize we desperately need grace and to say to us, Jesus Christ is full of truth. But he's full of grace. In fact, grace upon grace. Paul will echo this in Romans 5 when he talks about how God's law exposes our depravity and our love of sin and then says, but where sin increased, what? Increased grace abounded all the more. We're sinners. And we desperately need grace. 
God graciously uses his truth, the truth of his law, to work into our conscience and to prove to you and I that we are separated from him and hostile to him because of our sin. That's what comes through God's law, and that's why he says that. The law came through Moses, but in Jesus Christ, grace and truth have been realized. We now see the the hope that comes from a Savior who has given himself in our place. Grace upon grace, the grace that revealed our sin is replaced by the overflowing grace of Jesus Christ in our lives on an ongoing basis. I say that, if anybody here is this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ, to urge you and to plead with you to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, to, to surrender to him, to embrace the fact that he has been gracious and he is willing to have stood in your place if you will bow before him and receive him as your savior. But I think it's also helpful for us who are already trusting in Christ just to be reminded of that, that that's a balance you and I tend to get out of, out of place, grace and truth. There are times when, man, we are, we are all truth. I, I, my kids can probably vouch for this. There are parenting moments when I am nothing but the truth. And, and it's like, man, where did the grace go from that experience? And then there's times when we get a little wishy-washy and we sort of, eh, that's, that's hard and compromise a little bit. And I don't want to have to do that. And that's a little bit rough on my life. And I'm... I'm okay over here, you know, acting this way. The, the beauty of seeing Jesus Christ in this gospel as we continue to look at his life is to see what, what John is saying is the perfect blend of grace and truth, the perfect ability to look at the woman at the well and say, oh, oh no, your, your life's actually a mess. I, I can tell you about it, but I can also give you water that would give life. I, I can be that source of life for you that provides forgiveness and hope and sustenance. It, it's good for us as believers, not just to see this grace and truth side to side in terms of the gospel, but to see it in our daily lives. To be people who are grounded in truth and aren't afraid to speak truth, but who also are quick to minister grace and to apply that grace. We need both. You cannot come to God if you are unwilling to believe the truth of the gospel, but by the same token, if you believe the truth of the gospel and there is no grace, you and I are lost. That's our hope, is that he is a gracious God. He is the fullness of God, and his grace is infinite. Let's pray together. Father, it is something that we probably take too for granted, that throughout eternity there was nothing but perfection and bliss and joy and peace between the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in your grace, you interrupted that to send your Son, your beloved one and only unique Son, to come and, and put on flesh and experience temptation and no hunger and to sense weariness and to be surrounded by faithless people and to be mocked at and spit upon and ultimately rejected and despised and nailed to a cross. Father, thank you for the unbelievable grace that would send your son to come and stand in our place and to pay that price. And Lord Jesus, we, we worship you. We are thankful for your 
sacrifice beyond measure. Thankful that this is not a a wishy-washy sort of anything-goes belief that there is truth that, that stands firm, but thankful that that truth comes with a more than sufficient measure of grace. Lord, I pray if there's anybody this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, would today, Lord, be the day that you would open their eyes and graciously call them to yourself. Cause them today to embrace Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Messiah, as the God whom he claimed to be. And Lord, for we who are trusting, as we set out on this new week, make us people who love truth in a world that is despising of truth and wants ambiguity on just about everything. Help us to be people who believe that there is a right and a wrong, that there is good, that there is evil, that there is truth to be stood up for and proclaimed. But help us never to lose sight of the fact that we would be just as blind and ambiguous and wallowing in the darkness were it not for your grace, and therefore we have a responsibility to minister grace to the people around us. Thank you for your great kindness to us. Thank you, Spirit, for applying these truths. Help us to to live them out this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.